You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, the FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is found guilty in his fraud trial, now facing decades in prison. We'll break down the decision and discuss what it means for the broader crypto industry. Plus, Apple shares taking a hit after the world's most valuable company warns of a sluggish holiday quarter and some weakness in China. We have full coverage ahead. And we'll have an exclusive interview with the CEO of Siemens as the company invests half a billion dollars in new U.S. manufacturing. But first, let's check out these markets. It is a macro picture, one of a calling jobs market, which means maybe we're in Goldilocks scenario. People buy on the fact that maybe the Federal Reserve can indeed rest on their laurels for a little bit now. We're seeing the Nasdaq currently up 1.1%. I mean, having an absolute phenomenal week, best week of the entire year. So too is the S&P 500. In fact, the 30-year yield dips down some seven basis points on the day. Last three days, we've seen the 30-year yield plunge the most since back in the pandemic. So notable moves in the bond market and the stock market. We're looking at the dollar index off by almost a full percentage point down against every major currency that we currently see because we start to anticipate a less hawkish Fed. Let's look at what it means for the world of crypto, which we're going to be digging into much more this entire hour, Ed. And actually, we saw a little bit of a pop over the last, well, day of trading first and second of November. But in general, we're range bound once again below that $35,000 level. It's notable that we're actually climbed just slightly over the last five days. But really, we do seem to have seen a peak in the buying. Maybe we now need to dissect what the ramifications of Sam Bankman-Fried's guilty verdict means for broader crypto at large, Ed. What are you watching? Well, the other big story, which is Apple, you know, this was the one we were waiting for. And largely, we got what we expected, the fourth straight quarter of overall sales decline for Apple. You have to go back two decades, 2001, to the last time Apple had a slump like that. In the show, we're going to go deep on China in particular. They had very clear explanation for what Apple thinks is happening in China. But basically, they missed estimates saying iPhone was actually strong, a record revenue quarter for iPhone, but weakness in iPad and Mac. So much to discuss. And it's kind of strange because there's so much news. Thursday night was wild in the world of technology, right? Apple was a big story in the moment, and then it quickly became eclipsed. But we will bring you that analysis throughout the hour. We will. Meanwhile, though, let's get back to the disgraced FTX founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. He's been found guilty of seven counts of fraud and conspiracy following a month-long trial that pitted the testimony of the former crypto king against those of some of his closest friends. Joining us now, someone who was in that courtroom when we saw very swiftly this verdict decided, Bloomberg's Yuchi Yang. Just what was it like to be getting that sort of response that quickly? Um, it was a complete surprise. Nobody expected the result would come out so quickly. Um, the verdict, the, the deliberation started shortly after 3 p.m. Um, on Thursday. And some people just left the courthouse and went home because uh, usually for cases of this scale, um, jury will take sometimes um, or even days to deliberate it. But um, turns out we got the, the verdict uh, shortly before 8 p.m. So the jury really uh, took a quick turnaround, turnaround on this, and uh, we find out that Sam was convicted on all counts. 
very few people ultimately able to be there to witness that moment, Yuchi. Can you just tell us sort of what the reaction was of Sam Ahmed himself, of, of his own lawyers, for example? Yeah, I will start by saying that um, earlier in the night, there's actually some lighthearted moments. Um, the first jury note came out um, and the judge said there are only three words written on it, uh, which is we want cars. Um, and that's uh, what the jury was asking for. They wanted to get uh, transportation provided for them when they go home uh, after finishing the night. And when the judge announced that the entire courtroom just burst into laughter, nobody expected that uh, to be the first jury note. And even Sam himself, he was laughing. Um, it was probably the biggest laugh I've seen him throughout this trial. Um, but then I would say that the mood really darkened uh, later into the night. And uh, when we find out that there's going to be a verdict, um, the entire courtroom was just quiet. You could just feel the sense of suspense, um, the, the, the sense of nervousness among people. And eventually, uh, the judge was the one reading out the verdict. Um, Sam rose up as he listened to the verdict. Uh, he was collapsing his hands uh, in front of him, um, standing very uptight, um, didn't really have much facial expression on his face. And um, as uh, he listened to the verdict, um, the guilty, guilty for every single count, he just kind of had this um, serious look on his face. Um, and then meanwhile, his parents um, were just, uh, you could tell they were devastated. The dad, uh, Joe Bankman, he kind of doubled down and looked down. And um, after the, the, the verdict was announced, the parents, um, uh, at the end of the, the, the this uh, proceeding, they tried to uh, approach Sam, Sam Bankman free from the back, um, but they really couldn't get to him because uh, there is a barricade um, that kind of separated the, the courthouse uh, courtroom between the gallery and where the lawyers are. And Sam uh, was immediately escorted out by U.S. Marshals. And uh, on his way out, he took a brief uh, glance back at his parents and uh, there's a slight nod and acknowledgement at his parents and then he was gone. Bloomberg's Yuchi Yang, incredible reporting of the events that took place in that New York courtroom on Thursday evening and later in the show we will get more reaction from the crypto industry for what this symbolizes um, much more broadly than the events of Thursday. The other top story that we have to get back to here on Bloomberg Technology is Apple's earnings. We're going to bring in Forrester Research Principal Analyst Judy Ask, who I'm delighted to say is with us here in San Francisco. You heard me at the top of the show, we kind of got what we thought was coming, yes. four straight quarter of overall sales decline. But then you dig down by product and number and it's much more complicated. We start with China. What was your takeaway there? So I, I, I said I listened to most of the comments from Tim Cook, and I understand the elements about the smartphone. What I thought was interesting about China and interesting about his announcements is Apple had growth in some of the largest economies in the world, right? Yeah. Places they haven't traditionally been strong or had a lot of sales. And you heard him talk about China with record growth in smartphones. You heard him talk about India. You heard him talk about Indonesia and three of the largest, you know, economies. Well, not economies, but country, you know, populations, markets, yeah. markets in the world. And I, I thought that was encouraging that they're looking for growth beyond their existing customer base and outside of the Americas, which have typically been their strength. Okay, so in Greater China, sales fell 2% year on year, but Apple said that on a constant currency basis, they mm -hmm. would have grown. What they said was that in Greater China, iPhone had a record quarter and the drag in sales was principally in Mac and iPad, where in that quarter, there'd been no refresh on the product. What's the conclusion we draw? We just take it at face value that actually iPhone's doing fine there. So not being a financial analyst, I would have to take it that at face value. But I think there's a couple of things in play here. Like one of them is, is this the upgrade cycles are slower. If we think back to when we first had phones or smartphones, we were upgrading those every 18 to 24 months. And that upgrade cycle is probably closer to three to four years now. The second thing I, I take into account when we think about um, you know, the markets is this isn't their biggest quarter. You know, we're coming into holiday season, which is by far the biggest quarter for Apple and for every retailer that's there. And when we look at our data, we have 24% of US online consumers saying they're gonna spend more, 40% at least the same as last year. And we've got almost 25% of consumers saying they're gonna spend that money on consumer electronics. So I think also as we look forward, there's some optimism, at least for this holiday season. And yet, the guidance wasn't one of optimism. And to that extent, Julie, do you think this is just Apple being typically cautious in this respect? 
Yeah, there's probably Apple being typically cautious. I think Apple, in some ways, also they hold their uh, what do they call it? They hold their cards close to their chest. I mean, mm. Apple is playing a long game here. Uh, when Tim Cook talked about the ecosystem of hardware, software, and services, uh, they had a new chipset come out about I think it was a week, maybe it was just this week, right? Uh, their products get better with each generation of chips that come out. You look at more than one billion active uh, subscribers and two billion active devices. Those folks are spending a lot of money with Apple. And those are just the services we pay for, right? But it's payments, it's healthcare, it's maps, it's email, it's everything we do 100 or 200 times a day. And I do believe that they're playing a long game here that make this the, it's certainly they're, you know, they're chasing acquisition, but also the switching costs off of Apple are very high these days for anyone who has bought into the Apple ecosystem. And I think that's a real place of strength for Apple. Ultimately, this becomes, therefore, a global narrative and one of which we are more worried about China, we're worried about the implications longer term. But do you think that competition from the Android sphere is getting more real, more ferocious, more clear and and the nationalism playing into this respect? So I think I don't follow the Chinese market as closely, but I think certainly that's an element in a market, you know, like China or India. Uh, you know, when we think about Apple and smartphones, uh, they're certainly chasing the top end of the market. Uh, it's a very profitable uh, device for them, and not every company that's selling smartphones um, is, or I would say, is selling is you know the, the goals and profit. You know, some companies make money in other ways. Mm. You know, it could be the telecom providers, it's advertising, and there's a lot of different business models in China and India and in some of these other countries that are less prevalent here in the United States that make the sale of the smartphone, you know, I would say less important in some of those markets in terms of total revenue. Julie, it's always great to get your expertise. We thank you for it. Forrester Research Principal Analyst, Julie Usk. Meanwhile, we're going to stick in the Apple-verse. Foxconn is best known, of course, for building iPhones, but now it's betting big on, guess what, electric vehicles. We spoke exclusively with the Foxconn chairman and CEO, Young Liu, about his belief in an electric future. Take a listen. After four years, we're becoming more and more excited because the more we learned about this new industry, the more we believe this is the right industry for FastCon to go into because with FastCon's experience and its scale, and it creates you know, big enough entry barriers for our competitors in the ICT industry to go into. How big is uh, the opportunity for Foxconn in terms of the market size and also for the company's capabilities? You know, for the market size, uh, we did a study when we you know, started about uh, three or four years ago. At that time, the market at 2025 was estimated at 600 billion US dollars big. You know, so this is big enough if we can get, you know, like 10% of it, it will be 60 billion, right? And Foxconn is running at about 270-ish, you know, that kind of you know, uh, market, that kind of revenue. So with 60 billion, it's about two point some, uh, 25% around that figure. Uh, you're building a factory from the ground up in Thailand. Uh, you bought a factory uh, for this project in Ohio. First of all, what did you think when you visited the facility in uh, Lordstown, Ohio? Well, it's a huge facility. There's a lot of histories and a lot of capabilities. We think we can do a lot by converting that factory to an EV factory. And also because the surrounding environment, they used to do, I would say, 500,000 uh, cars a year at that kind of capacities. Definitely, you know, you have, you have to have enough uh, supply chain in the area in order to support that kind of uh, production. And with the supply chain almost there, with the uh, location, uh, with the space that is big enough. So we think it will be very good you know, for the EV production there. Foxconn's chairman and CEO, Young Lu, in a pretty incredible exclusive coming out of Asia from Bloomberg's Reed Stevenson.
Siemens announcing more than 500 million US dollars in manufacturing investments in the US to support rapidly growing industries like data centers, semiconductor, and battery manufacturing. And that includes a new 150 million manufacturing plant in the Dallas Fort Worth area in Texas. Siemens Global CEO Roland Bush joins us now from Dallas. Uh, big news, Dr. Bush, and thank you for your time on Bloomberg Technology. How much of this is, is being pushed by the IRA and the incentives that were on offer to establish a supply chain here in this country? Well, I mean, our 500 billion investment program in the United States um, has two reasons. Of course, it's an uh, attractive environment on the one side, but it's also a market. It's our customers which are asking for our technology. So, um, you know that earlier the year we announced 220 million investment in North Carolina and Lexington. This is a brand new rolling stock manufacturing plant. And this is definitely pulled by our customer. I mean, our customers are really uh, buying rolling stock trains and locomotives from us. And now, today, we announced 150 million investment in Dallas, Fort Worth. And this is about electrical products. We are basically supporting the data center industry and large language models, data centers with electrical products. And that's a reason for investing. And of course, an attractive market environment is an add-on too. Do you have a clear line of sight to the funding that is available from the IRA? One of the things I've heard from CEOs all over the world is that on paper it's fantastic, but getting hold of the funds and getting going on the project actually has some latency to it. Yeah, well, you know, the, the point is, number one is the funds, but um, for me, the most important point is really people. If you, when we talk about a manufacturing side, we talk really about a fully automated and digitalized manufacturing side. So you really have to get the right people on the shop floor. We are training and educating people at the same time. So available people in a market which is really scarce of labor is, is one of the biggest advantages. This is what we find here. And we are doubling down basically on our investment, which we have already in Grand Prairie. Team did a great job in really doubling our business within three years on electrical products and uh, strong customer demand comes together. So that is a nice fit for um, investing in the United States, in particular here in Texas. Well, let's talk about Texas. You join us from Dallas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. What was it about that location that made it an attractive place for you to set up your supply chain there? Yeah, I mean, as I said before, it's a very attractive environment from the, from the government, what, they, what kind of support they provide. Uh, number two, it's 40 miles away from Grand Prairie, where we have already a, a full-fledged manufacturing site for electrical equipment. We have the people there, we have the supply base there, we have the management. So it's easy to double down our investment on already a very great team performance. And, and then we found a nice place here, a very good place. It's an existing site, which was used for a warehouse. We, convert, we are going to convert it now for manufacturing. So it all comes together. And again, this is a very, <clears throat> a very business-friendly environment that you find here in Texas. You talk about, Dr. Bush, your focus on an end user, the client, the demand coming from the United States. Compare and contrast that to Europe at the moment. How much are you seeing clients having to dial back some of their demand because of the macroeconomic environment? What we do see is, uh, let me start with the energy intensive industries. Um, they are really looking into the United States because you have very low energy prices. And that's a big advantage. On top comes your Invest, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is really supporting investment in the United States. So this is where our customers, I mean, it's a chemical industry, we batch pre-manufacturers, um, data centers, but, but any kind of energy intensive industry is moving to the United States. They're looking into that market and it's a market too. It's a big market too. And, and we are in many, many cases, we are following our our customers to these markets and investing there. So this is a very, very um, positive environment. And you see also semiconductors are following. So all the energy intensive and critical infrastructure businesses, they are coming to the United States. This is a, a clear trend. We do know that also Europe is putting some um, support and uh, subsidies uh, for, for companies. Um, this will also get some investment, but the competitive edge on low energy prices is a clear advantage for the United States. Dr. Bush, I'd love to discuss that competitive edge, your home nation, Germany, and its economy. 
um, is being debated by the technology industry. And at the same time, the EU's kind of response to the Inflation Reduction Act as a place to do business and incentivize investment. Talk to us about the equation for you of Germany versus the United States. I think you have to differentiate what kind of sectors you're looking into. As I said, energy intensive industries, it's very hard to defend. At the same time, we have very, very strong ecosystems in Germany in particular. It's not only the big companies, but it's all the whole ecosystem of small and medium sized enterprises in machine tools, uh, machine manufacturing, but also, for example, the, the medical industry, car industry, but also to some extent pharmaceutical chemical. If you, if you look forward in the way how you can deploy new technologies in these markets, that gives you an idea which kind of industries you are able to defend or even expand. It's all about technology. I mean, Germany is, a, is an export country, it's an innovative country, it's an industrial country, and this is the strength what we have to play and we have to strengthen. There's a reason why I very much support also the subsidies which we're giving into for Intel, for example, but also for all speed and TSMC to invest in semiconductors industry in Germany because we do have the right environment, the right people, educated people, a good environment to really also go for this kind of industry. So you have to look in a, in a differentiated way and there are still industries which I believe have a great future, but we have to build our strengths, which is ecosystems and technology. Siemens Global CEO Roland Bush, thank you for your time here on Bluebird Technology. Caroline. Meanwhile, let's talk a little bit more about some of the companies that are outperforming on the day, Yelp being one of them. We're going to be speaking with the CFO next on the company's earnings, how they're managing to post double-digit growth and revenue. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Time now for Talking Tech. First up, Jeff Bezos says well, he's moving to the East Coast. The Amazon founder is relocating from Seattle to the Miami region in order to be well, close to his parents. The Blue Origin operations, of course, as well in Cape Canaveral. Meanwhile, XAI will finally introduce its first AI model this weekend to a select group of people. And the billionaire Elon Musk started the venture over the summer. This comes merely a day after Musk reiterated that AI poses an existential threat to humanity. That was over in the UK at the AI Safety Summit. Plus, a new bipartisan bill would put the National Institute of Standards and Technology in charge of deploying AI safety standards. The bill, proposed by two U.S. senators, would direct NIST to provide federal agencies with safeguards for AI, of which they would be required to adapt. A similar bill is expected to be introduced in the House, Ed. 
All right, earnings, Yelp shares popping after the company reported earnings, boosting its net revenue and adjusted EBITDA forecasts for the full year. Joining us now, delighted today, CFO David Schwartzbach. Uh, David, analysts are basically saying you're, you're a, a juggernaut. Tenth straight quarter of double-digit revenue growth. I think what's missing is the answer on what keeps that going. Ed, it's good to be here. It is the 10th straight quarter of double-digit growth for us. That's been against the backdrop of what has certainly been a challenging environment for digital advertising. Uh, How have we done it? Well, it certainly starts with consumers. Tens of millions of consumers come to Yelp every month for our trusted reviews. We're obviously a household brand. When they're making those critical decisions, like going out on a first date, they want to go to the right restaurant. But if you're spending a lot on remodeling your kitchen, you really want to choose someone who's going to do a great job for you. And around services in particular, we've really leaned in. 14% growth in the third quarter for services, 20% in home services. We think we're taking market share and we're doing that while driving adjusted EBITDA. It was a record quarter for us at 28% adjusted EBITDA. And we think our product-led strategy is really working very well for us. We think it's the best quarter in the company's history, and we think that we're set up to have the best year in the company's history. David, we love the numbers. I love digging deep into the financials. But with Yelp, I just always want to know what the story is, right? In this economy, with the priorities that consumers have, what is the, the, the psychology or, or driver that makes them go on Yelp? What is it that the consumer's doing that helps your business grow? Well, against a backdrop of high inflation, where things are more expensive, that means people can't go out as often. They can't do as many home projects. So they really want to make sure they're making a good decision. And what we found actually is that consumers are doing even more research than ever before making those purchase decisions. And the folks who are coming to Yelp, they're high intent. They're actually ready to purchase. They're affluent. Um, They are, the majority of folks have gone to college. They have advanced degrees. And so they want to do that research before they make that purchase decision. I'm interested in these being record sets of numbers, you say perhaps the best quarter in history, yet your market capitalization is is half of where its best was back in 2014. How can you convince an investor base that you are worth more, that the value of what you're bringing is more to an investor right now? Well, we really have transformed the company over the past five years, and we moved from what was a sales headcount-driven growth model to a product-led growth model. And that product-led growth model is paying off. We obviously saw very strong adjusted EBITDA margin in the third quarter. But over the long term, we think that that product-led model enables us to continue to deliver profitable growth for the long term. You know, we're just going through our planning process for 2014 and 2024. And we're very excited about what we can achieve next year that will enable us to deliver these types of consistent results. How about globally speaking, David here, where can you pull on levers in terms of growth? We were just speaking with a European-based company, Siemens, which of course is having a harder macro picture in Europe than it is in the US. How do you see your ability to continue to ride a wave of US outperformance? U.S. economy certainly has held in there, and we've been very relevant to consumers that they've made those decisions, as I was saying, around inflation. But fundamentally, what we want to be able to do is to really leverage technology to continue to deliver value to consumers and to advertisers. At the end of the day, we have to give them value, and they have to find us relevant. We obviously generate that content through these user reviews. We think it's really important for those to be trusted. We want to be that trust brand for folks, but we also want to be the best possible place for consumers to go to make purchase decisions, particularly around services. So we're continuing to invest there. We're continuing to differentiate the experience. We grew home services about 20% in the third quarter. We think we're taking market share, and we think that that sets us up very well for the future. David, great to have some time with you. Yelp CFO, David Schwarzbach, really giving a really great macro picture there for us. Ed, to you. Yep. It's Friday, which means for the final time this week, let's get a check-in on those European markets. Actually, the stock 600 Europe, it's the gauge we've been checking in all week long because it's kind of cross-European, has had its best week since March, really rebounding. A big part of that is the central bank story all over the world, but also some European earnings feeding into it. Kind of countering that, and the other side is the geopolitical risk story, and the Israel-Hamas war has been impacting Brent crude, which is kind of the global benchmark for oil, separate from WTI. We're down 4 
4% on the week. We've seen yields come down a little as well. The German 10-year burned 2.63% off 20 basis points over the course of the week. And euro dollar, the euro up 1.6% against the dollar. It's been a fun week. We've been showing you European markets because of the time difference at this time of year. But that's it. And those European markets, Ed, as fun as they are, have been dictated in large part by macroeconomic policymaking over here in the United States. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the Fed yesterday, well, on Wednesday indeed, but also what's happening in terms of the data, the rich data we're getting and the cooling that we're getting in the macroeconomy here in the US. From a jobs perspective, the Goldilocks scenario is on. The stocks, they rise here in technology. We're up NASDAQ 101.3%, basically best week for the big benchmarks since last year. So clearly a desire to be getting back into some of these stocks that have been sold off. I'm looking at a two-year yield, as you'll see, currently dipping down. In fact, across the board, we've seen bonds rallying, yields falling, as we anticipate a less hawkish Fed. I'm also looking at what's happening in the world of Bitcoin. And actually, interestingly, even though we've got a weaker dollar, significantly weaker dollar, we're still seeing Bitcoin just to the downside. That seems to be a read across more on what's happening in the world of court decisions around Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, the guilty verdict, Ed. Yeah, and that is the biggest story of the day, one of the biggest stories of the year, and we'll get back to it. Sam Bankman-Fried convicted of a massive fraud that led to the collapse of the FTX exchange follows a month-long trial where we heard from Sam Bankman-Fried himself, from some of his closest friends and confidants. We want to go back and look at how the trial played out with Christine Adams, partner at Adams, Dirk and Kamenstein, who has over 25 years of experience as a former federal prosecutor specializing in SEC investigation and white-collar crimes. Our reporter earlier in the program painted the picture. She was in the courtroom the moment that the verdict was read out. Was the verdict and the seven guilty counts that came a surprise to you? Honestly, no. I was a bit surprised that the verdict came so rapidly, but I think everyone who was watching this trial with some background and expertise saw this ship sinking rapidly. Uh, it was clear that Sam Bankman-Fried's testimony was going to be what it ended up being, a Hail Mary pass that was not successful. Uh, there really wasn't a question when the government kept things so simple and just simply showed that Sam Bankman-Fried said one thing and did entirely another and that his image was basically a ruse as part of this whole cryptocurrency fraud. Christine, the lead headline at Bloomberg this morning is SBF faces decades in prison after swift guilty verdict. The facing decades in prison part. Help our audience understand how that sentencing process will work from this point. Sure. So there is um, a set of guideline factors out there the U.S. sentencing guidelines, but those are entirely discretionary. So the court is required to consider those various factors and then make a determination in his own discretion how those factors will apply to uh, Mr. Bankman-Fried's sentence. What's deriving the sentence that everyone's describing as possibly light is the loss involved here. Obviously, there's millions, if not billions of dollars lost here. So that's one main consideration. Another consideration will be uh, his leadership in the organization. So what will happen is Mr. Bankman-Fried will be subjected to an interview by pre-trial service, by the probation office, and they'll prepare what's called a pre-sentence report and make a recommendation based on his personal background information and the factors around these crimes that the defense and the government can then respond to, and the court will take all of that into consideration in sentencing Mr. Bateman-Fried. His own legal team, of course, showed their disappointment regarding the verdict. Will they appeal, and what sort of grounds might they use? For example, I've seen lots that there was concern around lack of, well, ability to access certain medicines, for example. Yes, for apps, I'm certain that they will appeal, and that will likely be one of the grounds. Another ground will possibly be the fact that the court limited his defense, that he relied on the advice of lawyers as evidence in his case. Uh, I understand that the defense was uh, objected to vociferously by the government during uh, the defense's cross-examination of the cooperating witnesses and that those objections were sustained by the government, that might be another grounds for appeal as well. And what about those that gave evidence, those that in many ways pleaded guilty themselves? How do we anticipate that they too will 
will face punishment, potentially prison time? They will. This, again, will be in the court's discretion. They will be sentenced after Mr. Bankman-Fried is sentenced. And the court will take into consideration their cooperation in this case. The court will also take into consideration the fact that they were all leaders in this organization as well. One was a head of engineering, one was a co-founder, one was a CEO of FTX. The court will also take into consideration the value of their testimony. You know, it's very difficult uh, oftentimes to prove someone's intent. There was obviously a lot of corroborating evidence in contemporaneous text messages and documents, but certainly having the people that were in the room talking about what Mr. Bankman-Fried was saying is, is very valuable. The court will also take into consideration that they cooperated essentially after the fact. No one took a risk and wore a wire while this was happening. So these are all things the court will take into consideration in sentencing the, the cooperating witnesses. Christine Adams, really great to get your expertise. We thank you, partner on Adams, Dirk and Kamenstein, decades in that expertise as a prosecutor. Meanwhile, look, let's continue the conversation on what the ramifications are for the rest of the industry, the crypto industry. Nick Carter, founding partner of Castle Island Ventures, pleased to say is with us. VC firm focused on public blockchains. And Nick, I mean, is this good news? Is this like a sigh of relief for the industry that this has sort of been done and dusted? Or does this still have a spillover effect that well, crime could have been committed within this industry group. No, it was a moment of relief. And uh, I saw a lot of celebration, jubilation on crypto Twitter last night. Every, practically everyone in the industry was harmed by SPF, by FTX. No one escaped unscathed. And of course, there's a secondary effect where the collapse of FTX gave regulators air cover to go after the industry really harshly, which we've seen in the last year. So I think virtually everybody is pleased at the guilty verdict here and grateful that this is over and we can put this sorted episode behind us. Nick, good morning from San Francisco. Good afternoon where you are. Uh, look, we, we are careful to draw, draw a causal link, right, over the trading of crypto markets this week and the trial. Uh, but that's what we're writing about on Bloomberg this morning. The headline, Red Hot Crypto Rebound Calls as Bankman Freed is Found Guilty. Did you see that, you know, the tension of the trial play out in the markets that you're focused on? I don't necessarily see a strong connection between the outcome of the trial and price action. I mean, ultimately, virtually everyone thought this would be the outcome. I think it was very clear over the prior few months that Sam didn't have much of a defense. And frankly, it was very obvious if you'd followed any of the books written about FTX that he didn't have much of a case here. I mean, uh, his defense that he'd mounted in the initial weeks after the insolvency, after the bankruptcy, uh, was pretty weak. I mean, they, they siphoned the funds and the margin trading excuse didn't really make any sense. So um, from what I can tell, it seems like everyone kind of expected this outcome. I thought some people thought there might have been a you know, hung jury or small likelihood that he weaseled his way out of it. But ultimately, it was pretty forecastable. Nick, you mentioned how basically no one was left unscathed in the industry. And I bring up a, a post coming from Alfred Lin, of course, of Sequoia. And he had said, I think, after the results, that today's swift and unanimous verdict confirms what we already knew, that SVF misled and deceived so many, from customers and employees to business partners, investors, including myself and Sequoia. In fact, he said, basically, they did their own 18-month working relationship. They evaluated that, and they concluded they'd been deliberately misled and lied to. What are the learnings from this? The positive's got to be how things change, due diligence, of course, being one of them, but ultimately how people investigate the founders and indeed what's being built in the ecosystem. Have things changed? Yeah, I mean, I don't know precisely what Sequoia's diligence process is, but it is the job of a venture capitalist to ascertain whether you are being lied to. I mean, we passed on FTX. We felt that the risks, uh, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze there. It was an unregistered offshore exchange. We passed on it twice. Many of us were skeptical of SBF throughout his whole history in the crypto space. Uh, I'm not saying we knew there was a fraud going on, but the signs were certainly there. I think the lesson to take from it is you can't be taken in by these wonderkins that become the main character in crypto and don't be taken in by outrageous growth and you know things like boards and governance really matter alignment really matters so there certainly was a way as a venture capitalist to decide that the opportunity wasn't worth it
Nick Carter, founding partner of Cast Island Ventures, giving his perspective on his interactions with FTX and the outcome of this trial. Thank you very much for your time here on Bloomberg Technology. Now, it's not the only crypto situation that's under Washington's scrutiny. Yesterday, the FTC released a less redacted version of its antitrust complaint against Amazon, alleging the big tech giant doubled the number of junk ads to boost profits and deleted internal communications to thwart a federal antitrust probe. FTC Chair Chair Lena Khan spoke to Bloomberg's Emily Chang at a tech and antitrust event in San Francisco. Have a listen. I mean, what's really interesting is how, uh, be it in this case or a whole bunch of other cases relating to platforms, we see like a monopoly playbook. And so in the early years, the firms are chasing growth and share, and so they'll actually compete to make their products good for people. But we've seen how in digital markets, once the market tips and these firms start enjoying monopoly power and are able to start protecting that power, we see that they start you know, becoming too big to care in a basic way, where they can kind of make their product worse, they can make it more expensive. Uh, Corey Doctorow has written about this really effectively, about the kind of life cycle that we see where at the kind of end stage of of the monopoly cycle, these firms are just in extraction mode, uh, where they're really not having to compete or make their products better. And sometimes it can be hard to kind of imagine what the counterfactual would be, right? Like what would have happened if if we'd had more competition? Uh, But what's so interesting that we were able to find through our investigation was that, you know, you don't have to, they weren't being subtle about it, right? These were tactics that very overtly had the effect of overcharging people by upwards of a billion dollars, actively degrading their services in ways that they recognized was making the product worse. And at various points, you know, there were folks at Amazon saying, hey, like, we think these practices are actually bad for people. Uh, Let's not do it. And at each juncture, they were overturned by the executive. So it's, you know, all laid out in our lawsuit. And, you know, we think we have a strong case. So in your view, Amazon is a monopoly. Yes, that's what our lawsuit alleges. FTC chair, Lena Khan. Meanwhile, look, the CEO of TikTok will visit Brussels next week to discuss data protection and disinformation with representatives from the European Commission. And the meeting will be the first since the EU and a number of countries there banned government officials from using TikTok on their work phones. Ed. All right, coming up on the show, it's the race for memory in the LLM space. We're going to break all things memory chip down with Arajit Ray Chowdhury of Georgia Tech. This is going to be a deep, nerdy, but important conversation. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. 
So it's been a big week for the technology that's powering AI. AMD earnings showed significant demand for its MI300 AI accelerator, which is set to take on NVIDIA's H100. We also heard startups who need the chips to build large language models raising money or, in some cases, failing on a near-daily basis. A technical challenge for all of those, memory. As AI workloads increase, there's an intense demand and need for high-capacity memory chips, presenting a technical challenge known as the memory wall. Joining us to discuss, Professor Arajit Ray Chowdhury at the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering, Georgia Institute of Tech, and an expert in all things memory chips. So let's start with the memory wall, Professor. What is it? So uh, if you look at the performance of a, uh, of a processor and that of a memory, so the, the processor performance has increased or keeps on increasing every year at a much faster rate than the performance of a memory increases. So that creates a sort of a wall that we call the memory wall, which is the gap between the processor performance and the memory performance. When I talk about the memory performance, it's a couple of things. One is the capacity that you mentioned of the total memory that you need to perform that work, as well as the, as the rate, the bandwidth at which you can read and write from the memory. So so the, at the moment, what's happening with these large AI models, particularly these large language models or LLMs, is that the amount of memory that you need in order to store all the models, the activations, and all the intermediate data, as well as the rate at which you need to access all the data, are both becoming a huge yes. bottleneck in the entire workload or the computing you know, spectrum. So that's kind of the memory wall. The, the difference in logic performance and the memory capacity and bandwidth that you need in order to keep on feeding the logic. Uh, Arajit, this is your area of expertise. This week, AMD talked up their MI300X as having sort of superior high bandwidth memory. Uh, but the GH200, the Grasshopper, is coming from NVIDIA. What is your assessment of those two GPUs? I, I, I personally think they would be very comparable. So if you look at the H100s now compared to the AMD offering that we have, uh, of, of course, the HPM3 that AMD has has more capacity, has more bandwidth. But at the same time, if you look at the announcement from NVIDIA, which happened a few months back, uh, the Grasshoppers, the super chip that's going to come out, which is a CPU-GPU pair, that's kind of, uh, that'll have the same kind of HPM3 with, you know, with, uh, with as much memory capacity and higher bandwidth. So I think it's kind of a race between the multiple companies at the moment, which are all kind of, you know, gearing towards more bandwidth, more memory, more capacity, denser memory. So I think we are in some exciting times. Professor, you've argued in your research that what we need is denser, more energy efficient, uh, higher capacity memory. What's the solution? How do we find that? So it's uh, so there. Are, so the solution can be at multiple layers of the stack. So there is a lot of work going on in new technology, which is essentially going beyond, let's say, charge to look at other kinds of uh, material properties that can be used as memory. Uh, the next is, of course, circuits. How do you arrange those bit cells or those memory elements so that you can read, write, and access them with the lowest amount of energy, the highest performance? Then, of course, the architecture. Like how do you put the whole thing together? And that also includes today uh, more advanced packaging solutions. Uh, the idea would be to to keep on bringing the memory closer and closer to the GPU or the logic as possible. So HVM3 is an example where you essentially would use something like a what we call the 2.5D integration technique to bring the logic, the, the GPU or the CPU, close to the memory. Uh, going beyond, you know, people are looking at researching 3D solutions where you stack the memory on top of the logic or even bring a little bit of the logic into the memory so that you can do what is called in-memory compute or, or processing in memory. So uh, there are multiple research avenues that are being explored both in academia and in the industry and one or multiple of these will become the, the solution of the future. Uh, but I think the mantra is have more memory, dense, denser memory, more energy efficient memory, higher capacity, and at the same time you need this memory to be as close to logic as possible. Professor, we've been showing images of DDR5 from Samsung, uh, HMB3E from, from Micron. You, you take an academic perspective, but there's work in the private sector around the world on this. What excites you most? Who is doing the cutting edge of memory? I think different companies are doing different things, you know, and, and you know, innovations are happening at all the layers of, uh, of the stack. Uh, so Micron has some very interesting solutions. You know, we have one of the large uh, conferences in the device technology world, which is called uh, the International Electron Device Meeting, happens in San Francisco every uh, December. Uh, so there are some there are some announcements that Micron is going to make on some you know some very interesting, exciting memory technologies, uh, which are both uh, kind of based on 3D integration, uh, looking at SK Hynix 
Phoenix, looking at Samsung, uh, amazing solutions for Flash, uh, as well as for DRAM. So at, uh, at, at multiple layers of abstraction, you know, from the technology, from the circuits and, and architecture, uh, we see a lot of exciting things happening in the memory. And as I mentioned, you know, it's not just the memory in isolation, but the packaging, the integration, the, co the, the coupling with logic, that's, that's, you know, that's kind of making the entire space more, uh, more uh, vibrant. Professor Arijit Ray Chowdhury of Georgia Institute of Tech, thank you so much for your time. Shares of Apple still lower by about eight tenths of a percent after, of course, earnings last night. Let's get to Anurag Rana, Bloomberg Intelligence, to really well articulate that this is a China problem. It feels like first and foremost. Yeah, you see bad Mac sales, iPad sales, not that good. So the China number really was the biggest surprise on the negative side. Um, and, and, you know, that remains the concern. And I think that's going to be the most important factor when we go into the next earnings season also, because that, in our view, is going to dictate how Apple's next 2024 shapes up. Short, sweet, to the point, always looking forward to the next set of earnings, even while we still seem to be recovering from this set. Anurag Rana, we thank you so much of Bloomberg Intelligence, really with all well, the push forward there on Apple. And of course, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, yeah? Yeah, it's been an incredible week. We've covered European markets, we've had earnings, we've had the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. And don't forget, you can recap every episode on our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We have all of them on the Bloomberg platforms, but also Apple, Spotify, iHeart, as you can see there over Caroline's shoulder in New York City and over here in San Francisco. Happy Friday. This is Bloomberg Technology. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.